The cable fell out of the hook. It happened exactly at that time where you were too high to land forward, but too low to do a go around. They were shooting an insurance commercial. And you know, it's just, it's hard to tell how low you are on smooth water. And so you're just going in for the shot. There's a camera there and you push a little too hard. So uh, standing at the back of the grid was quite amazing just to see all of the, all the long wings out, out in front. And finally get to see what a competition staging was like. And off the ground in about an hour, three ponies pulling them up and just one right after the other. Hi everybody, this is Michelle. Before jumping into the latest episode, we here at The Pod wanted to first reach out to you, the listener community, and your soaring friends to get some community-generated new content for the show. We're looking for a couple of things here. One is we'd like to find two or maybe three people that would like to be regularly featured contributors where you would write original content for the show, whether that's doing one-on-one interviews like Chuck does, or whether that's telling stories or maybe teaching soaring technique or safety and so on. We know everybody is busy and the season is almost upon us, so we don't expect to get original content from contributors every episode. But as a target, we are thinking about once a month. And if we have two or even three contributors that join up with us on the pod, then we should be able to have a community contributed segment each episode. We are pretty open to what this content could be, and we welcome your ideas and how you think you could fit into the mission of the show with your content. If things go well on this new community contributed segment, we'll probably end up using Patreon funds to get people nice USB microphones or help cover subscription fees for podcasting services like Zencaster and so forth. We're excited to get the community involved in contributing original content. The other thing, and this should generate a lot of really interesting content as well, we want to open up a channel for people in the soaring community to send us recordings or leave us voicemails of stories they want to tell and share on the Soaring the Sky website to just make it as easy as just a few clicks and done. But the idea is that instead of having to agree to a formal interview and schedule and time zone differences, you, the community, can just head over to our website and record a short story or vignette that you think is worthy of sharing with other listeners. We are opening the show up to you, the soaring community, and we're going to be pretty open-minded about how and who gets us closer to our goal of a real community-centric show. If you are interested in being a featured contributor, please reach out to Chuck an email. Anyway, thanks for hearing us out and really looking forward to what comes out of this new initiative. And now, without further ado, let's turn things back over to Chuck and get this soaring podcast party started. Thank you so much, Michelle. We are excited to hear your stories, where you're flying, and also hear your show ideas for more great content here on the podcast. So don't be shy. Go to our website now. Click on Contact Us. You will see a microphone where you can record your story or message. Welcome back to Soaring the Sky, a glider and pilot's podcast. Of course, my name is Chuck. I'm your host flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group here in the Mid-Atlantic region of the United States. Can you believe it? This is episode 89. 
I do want to thank you all for listening. And of course, a big thank you to all of our Patreon pilots who continue to financially support the show. If you'd like to help us out financially, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash sky. You can also do that by going to our website and click the support the show button where there's many options there. If you want to help us out in another way, it's not going to cost you anything. You can go to your favorite podcast app and click subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Or also, of course, you can leave a review on your favorite podcast app. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization located in the high desert of Los Angeles, California. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. On this episode of the podcast, we first head to the Philippines and talk with Rolf Dunder. He originally learned to fly in Germany, but is currently the only glider pilot soaring in the Philippines. Rolf started soaring in 1979 and soloed in 1980 at the age of 15. He received his PPL in gliders in 1982 and his CFIG in 1989. In 2000, he picked up his ultralight rating and in 2001, his paraglider as well as his single engine rating in 2002. In 2008, he moved to the Philippines where he started glider operations. Rolf has flown many gliders including the ASK-13, KA-8, KA-6, K-7, Twin-3, ASK-21, GG-505, ASW-15B, ASW-19B, LS-4, a standard Labelle, IS-28, Schweitzer-233, Duo Disco, SZD-55, and the Nimbus-4DM. Rolf has also experienced soaring all over the world and has flown in Japan, France, Australia, Italy, Spain, the United States, and even had the pleasure to be a guest on a 985-kilometer triangle flight in a Nimbus 4DM in South Africa. Rolf has logged over 900 hours in gliders. That includes over 2,500 flights. He also has over 100 hours in single-engine aircraft with 300 hours in ultralights and 100 hours in paragliders. Later on this episode, we will hear another exciting soaring adventure from Dale Masters on Soaring Tales with Dale, and this one is titled, Go Fly a Kite. For our soaring safety segment, CFIG Ben Mays joins us from Williams Soaring Center in Williams, California, with some great advice and some super interesting soaring stories. For our tips and techniques segment, Monet Beers joins us to share her experience attending the recent Senior Soaring Championship in Seminole Lake, Florida. All this and more right now on episode 89 of Soaring the Sky. Rolf Dunder, welcome to the podcast. Excited to have you today. How are you? Hi, Chuck. Thanks. I'm fine. And uh, I'm uh, really, really happy to uh, talk to you because I so much appreciate your what you are doing here. Thank you, Rolf. So can you tell me a little bit about where you're flying out of? Well, um, my little airfield is uh, called TUI, that is uh, Tango Uniform Yankee, which is about two and a half hours uh, drive southwest of Manila in the Philippines. 
Oh, wow. So we were talking a little bit earlier before this interview, and you are the only glider right now flying around the Philippines. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, I'm pioneer here, so there's no gliders in the Philippines except mine. And uh, I started uh, already in 2008 with a uh, old K7 and K8 that I brought in from the Netherlands. And uh, now I added a ASW-19 and uh, a uh, SF-34, which is a Scheibe two-seater glider. So tell me, Rolf, what is it like flying around the Philippines? Well, the Philippines is a tropical country, so um, it is not necessarily the uh, paradise in gliding. Uh, you have uh, good weather conditions, uh, let's say cloud base of uh, 3,000 to 4,000 feet and uh, climb rates on a good day between four to six knots. But uh, uh, because it's tropical, you have a tendency of overdevelopment, uh, uh, thermals start late and uh, maybe 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, and uh, they uh, usually stop at 5 p.m. But my biggest problem is uh, there is no chance for any outlanding fields. So outlanding is impossible uh, in this area because uh, you have uh, rice paddies that are too small, like 30, 40 meters long, 30 meters wide, and most of the rice paddies have these little dikes around because, you know, they have to gather the water. Lots of uh, palm trees, uh, dense forest, tropical forest. So my problem is that I have to really uh, fly within the glide ratio of my airfield. I uh, did one cross-country flight from uh, my previous airfield of about 58 kilometers with a KA-8. But uh, I could do that because I had a much higher cloud base at that time. So was, uh, I think uh, it was... 7,000 feet uh, cloud base. And then I took the risk and did a straight uh, 58 kilometers flight. But this is the only cross-country flight that I did so far in this country. So all thermal flying, no ridges? Um, yes, right now it's all thermal. But uh, the new airfield in Tui, uh, I only started flying there last year. And uh, I'm still exploring because I have about, I have a 2,000, feet mountain small mountain range uh, in about uh, five miles distance from my airfield and uh, i think i think with the right uh, wind direction i could uh, switch to um, to rich soaring but more important is that uh, last year i saw a couple of uh, lentis so uh, it might be possible that i can uh, hit a wave one day but uh, you know, every flight for me right now is still exploring. I have a lot of convergence, but uh, sea breeze convergence, which uh, uh, is not very long. Like last week, I flew for four, four days, something like 18 hours, and uh, the convergence was maybe 15 kilometers long. So I flew 15 kilometers one direction, 15 kilometers the other direction, and that I don't know how many times. So... Um, yeah, everything is uh, is new, and uh, it's really uh, exciting for me to see um, what I can explore in the next couple of years. So speaking of weather in the Philippines, of course, famous for this powerful typhoon, sometimes over 10 a year. Is your airport located in an area that is often affected by these big storms? And what precautions do you take on the field and 
how do your hangers hold up to those kind of winds? Yeah, Chuck, um, we have about three or four times a year uh, heavy storms. Uh, sometimes they develop to um, to typhoons. And uh, my advantage in Tui Batangas is that uh, the airport is located on the lee side of a small hill. That's going to uh, dampen a little bit the effect of the typhoon. But... Uh, I also, um, you know, when I decided to build this hangar last year, I placed it on the lee side of a bigger hangar. So um, uh, it is it is protected by by the hangar of my friends there. But also, um, what we do is we usually plant trees on the uh, on the sides of the hangar to dampen uh, any wind effects. So far in my other locations, you know, I used to be in uh, in a place called Nampikwan before. Um, I encountered a couple of typhoons, but they uh, didn't do any damage. Um, reason also is because I have an opening between the roof and the side walls. So whenever a typhoon hits the hangar, there is a proper exchange of air pressure of outside and inside the hangar. I think the problem is when a hangar is totally enclosed then uh, and a high typhoon hits the hangar, then uh, uh, damage is more produced by the uh, uh, air pressure difference inside and outside of the building. Absolutely. Kind of like here with tornadoes, how they tell us to open the windows. So it doesn't get exactly. This is what this is how we constructed the the hangar to keep it open. There is openings for proper, uh, yeah, fast uh, exchange of uh, air pressure inside and outside. It sounds like you're busy most of the time working, but have you thought about getting some more help there? Maybe partners to grow the sport over time and take some of the load off you. There may, in fact, be some listeners on the podcast here that would be interested in going down there for several months or maybe even longer and help train local pilots and instructors. It seems like it would really be cool to open up the new world of aviation to the people down there. But I know it's hard to do all this, you know, as a one-man show. Have you thought about that? Uh, yeah, sure. This is the, uh, the, the my basic idea and concept. You know, I of course, I need here uh, people who know about uh, gliding. Um, right now, I'm really the only one. I have to explain to everybody uh, everything. Um, of course, Anybody all over the world who is interested uh, to come over here and have a look on what we are doing and maybe help out, uh, operate the winch or even uh, teaching gliding uh, is welcome. The only issue is here, I have not yet solved really the legal part of it. You know, uh, I'm still uh, working with the uh, Civil Aviation Authority of the Philippines to uh, make everything, um, you know, based on rules and regulations. But uh, I already had a lot of visitors from uh, Europe and even the United States coming over and uh, helping out. This is a basic thing. Whoever wants to comes over here to the Philippines is, uh, is uh, yeah, happily invited uh, to join me. Oh, very cool. Now, you had mentioned about soaring in Africa. I, 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 have, to, uh, I have to admit I want to hear a little more about that. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, you know, me living here in a country which is not so a favorable glider country, you know, the, the weather conditions are not so good, outlanding is scarce. So whenever I do my annual vacation somewhere abroad, I uh, 
get from my family the um, uh, the clearance for two or three days uh, flying somewhere. You know, so whenever we do a family trip abroad, Papa can uh, plan two or three days uh, gliding. That's why uh, I have visited quite a lot of those uh, famous uh, glider ports worldwide. So I was in southern France and in Fuente Milanos in Spain. And I flew Minden, I flew um, THAP. And uh, yeah, in 2018, it was a South Africa trip where I planned to um, fly also gliders in South Africa. So there's a German group. Uh, German pilots who every year bring their uh, high-performance two-seater um, gliders, motor gliders, to a small provincial airfield called Kuruman. So this um, this group is the Kuruman Glider Camp. This is uh, what you call in South Africa the area of north of the Orange. So it's just in the middle of the uh, Kalahari Desert. And uh, yeah, these mainly German pilots are uh, for many, many years already eager to explore uh, gliding in that uh, area. And the main organizer, uh, Gerd Kalisch, uh, was so friendly to invite me for one of his uh, bigger flights. And, you know, I only had a window of three days. And uh, exactly on that day when I could fly with him, we had uh, very, very good conditions. So... Uh, we took off somewhere at 11.20 in the morning uh, before noon and uh, we flew until late 7.30 in the evening and uh, covered about 985 kilometers. Oh, wow. Um, so we had there um, on that day um, thermals between 3,800 and 5,600 meters uh, sea level with... Uh, average climb rates of three to four meters per second so six to eight knots and um, it started uh, blue for the first two hours uh, um, we were still under blue thermals uh, making good progress with an average speed of 100k and later on the the um, cumulus developed and as i said uh, it went up to 5600 meters which is about 15, 16,000 feet. But then uh, in the late afternoon, everything dried out again. It got blue thermals and I will never forget, I had a, <laughs> I had a final glide of about 215 kilometers that we had to do, you know, and uh, with very strong headwind. And uh, although the, you have a, a, an engine in that glider, it's still uh, very, very uh, exciting to... Uh, to have a final glide of this uh, extent but uh, in between then a uh, little bit unexpected we found uh, still some other lift and made it very conveniently back to um, to Kuruman. and now a word about our recently added new sponsor just soaring these guys are doing an all-new glider simulator cockpit for you condor pilots out there that i think you're really going to be excited about this sim rig was designed from the ground up with glider flight controls like flaps that have multi-position detents, a spring-loaded spoiler mechanism, landing gear lever, and flight controls laid out where you expect them to be in your cockpit. 
Built with super strong 8020 T-slot aluminum, which will not only hold up well, but will also allow for accessorization and customization over time. Designed by Glider Pilots for Glider Pilots, their mission is to design, engineer, and globally distribute a truly best-in-class, very affordable performance glider sim cockpit. They plan to start taking pre-orders sometime in the next couple months, and they're looking at first shipments to be in spring of 2021. And yes, while they are a U.S. company, they plan to have warehousing in Europe to support that market as well. If you're thinking about upgrading your Condor cockpit, you might want to check these guys out first at JustSoaring.com or at Just.Soaring on Instagram. You can reach out to them via their website with any questions. And thanks again to Just Soaring for supporting the show. If you'd like to be a sponsor or know someone that might, please drop us a line. What are the dangers of landing out in that area? Um, well, you definitely cannot. There's, uh, it is all bush, and uh, specifically if you fly along the Botswana uh, um, border, um, the only things that you have is some uh, uh, airstrips from from miners or from farmers, uh, which are, um, of course, uh, we 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 had them all on our uh, GPS, but um, outlanding very very difficult. On the other hand, if you have something like three thousand eight hundred four thousand meters uh, base, you um, have a pretty good chance to um, to either find lift or uh, stay within the glide ratio of some of those few uh, outlanding fields. And you have the engine. Rolf, so before we get more into the interview, I always like to start off asking guests how their aviation journey got started and maybe who inspired them along the way. So could you tell us about your journey? Uh, yeah, sure. So I come from a, a small industrial hometown in Germany, which is uh, in the western part of Germany, which we call Ruhr Valley. Ruhr Valley has been the uh, heavy industry and coal mine area of Germany. So my hometown is about uh, 100 kilometers northeast of Cologne. And uh, my parents' place was just in the base of the local airfield. So already when I was very young, I saw all those Piper Colts and Cessnas and so on uh, low over our house. And I think that triggered a little bit my interest for aviation. But then I uh, found a, a very old book about gliding in our local uh, municipal uh, library and uh, read that book when I was 12 or 13 years old. And from that time onwards, uh, I was the one who went every free time to the airfield, stood at the fence and looked at the aircraft. And when I was 14, then my father allowed me to uh, start flying. So I got membership in the local gliding club and started flying in 1979 and uh, soloed in 1980 with 15 years old, um, flew as much as I could uh, when I was young and uh, with 23 did my CFI for gliding and uh, that was then the time where I really intensively uh, only worked as a flight instructor in our home, home club. Later on I did uh, of course also powered gliding and but because of training youngsters I more or less stopped uh, cross-country flying took part in a couple of uh, regional regional competitions and uh, 
Then actually I went to the United States on a, uh, you call it International Air Cadet Exchange Program. So it brought me in 1981 to Oregon and Washington. And uh, there I had some contact to uh, pilots also. It was a very impressive uh, time and uh, triggered then that I traveled to the United States uh, in the 1980s as a student, you know, low budget, going to Los Angeles, buying an old van and put camp stove and uh, sleeping bag into it. And then I traveled, I crisscrossed the United States. So um, that brought me also to Tehachapi, for example. I flew in Tehachapi uh, as guest or as, uh, you know, did some training in Minden. Uh, went to McMinnville up north in Oregon. So I had some some uh, experience with uh, what you are doing in the United States concerning gliding. That was quite uh, impressive. And uh, yeah, then uh, my job brought me to Hong Kong. I was working for a German um, electronics corporation. I had to go to Hong Kong and of course there was no gliding. So I took up paragliding. So uh, I spent something like a hundred hours in my life uh, paragliding mainly in Hong Kong and had to go to the Philippines. Um, and in the Philippines, I started uh, ultralight flying. So uh, I was very excited about uh, at least having a little bit of chance of flying. So I brought in a very sleek uh, uh, ultralight aircraft. It's a WD-4 fascination which is a uh, light sport aircraft with retractable gear, variable pitch propeller. And uh, flew that in the Philippines for quite some time. I still owe that plane. And uh, But then, you know, I, I was missing gliding. So uh, I saw in a German... German, this German website with, for used gliders, I uh, saw that... Uh, uh, a, a Dutch gliding club sold a K7 and a K8 as a package with one trailer. And uh, that was basically the trigger that I decided, oh, I have to bring those planes to the Philippines and start gliding in the Philippines. So I met one paraglider pilot here, a Filipino, who was a great uh, gifted engineer. And I, uh, I gave him some pictures of a gliding winch and asked him whether he can build one. And so he built a winch for me. So we bought an old truck and uh, we have a 320 horsepower uh, truck engine on that winch. And I think he built the best winch that I have ever seen because uh, later on, uh, even my wife operated the winch. Most of my time is winch launching. I have in my whole life, maybe uh, about 2,500 flights, of which uh, 2,400 are winch launches. And um, unfortunately, the runway is only 700 meters. So um, my release altitude on winch is about 700 feet with a two-seater. So uh, I do not have that much, uh, that much chances to uh, look for thermals. Uh, but... Uh, uh, I have the advantage that I can wait at uh, takeoff until the cumulus is directly over the winch, you know, because nobody is uh, pushing me. I can take off whenever I like. But uh, I also have a small, we, we, we have one tow plane here, a French Socata, which is now under, uh, under repair. But uh, 
I think uh, within this year, again, I also have a tow plane available. Have you had any winch launches that maybe were a little unsettling? Yeah, actually, um, I can tell you one story about uh, three months ago. It happened to me, you know, when we do winch launching and we have a runway only of 700 meters, so 2,100 feet. Um, what happened there was I was taking off with the two-seater SF-34 and uh, uh, the cable fell out of the hook. Uh, I still don't know why. Maybe it was not connected properly or uh, I, I have no, I, I really don't know. But uh, it happened exactly at that time where you were too high to land forward, but too low to do a go around. So um, uh, that was a little bit, uh, let's say, de demanding for me. I had to fly forward and do a 180 and then land in opposite direction. But uh, when you do that uh, with only 700 meters runway, so you have to go far, far forward in order when you turn around that you still have enough runway uh, ahead of you because uh, you, you land then with tailwind. And I had relatively strong wind. So uh, in this case, I really had to go very low. I had to go around trees and not over trees when I did the 180. But for me, just important is uh, the closer you get to the ground, uh, the faster you have to be, you know. So I, uh, I always uh, see to it that I have uh, higher speed the closer I get to the ground. You are pioneering there in the Philippines. So, Ralph, what kind of feedback are you getting from people around you? Yeah, people are all very excited. So uh, it is really, uh, uh, whenever I talk about my activities and uh, tell people that you fly an aircraft without engine, they they think that I do something very, very dangerous. You know, like an aircraft without engine is dangerous for them. And when they see winch launches, you know, it looks so spectacular. And uh, they they might think that, uh, that we are, uh, you know, people taking high risks but then when uh, I when they when they observe me flying and they see me doing longer uh, flights or I take them as guests with me they get really really excited so I have a couple of um, young pilots who are um, who fell out of their uh, pilot training on the commercial uh, airlines here uh, they visit me and some of them did uh, videos and uh, publish them on YouTube and uh, I have a couple of very, very interesting uh, videos that uh, have been published and uh, yeah, I have a very, very positive feedback, uh, lots of interest and uh, yeah, I am now in the process to develop that further and also I'm flying as much as I can. Unfortunately, I can only fly on weekends where I have time and I'm quite busy so, um, I, but Still, you know, I will. I'm, I hope to develop now a glider group and uh, uh, maybe set up a club uh, within the next couple of years. That would be great. Anything we can do to get the word out, we will. I also want to put some links to your YouTube videos in the show notes. I know some of the listeners would love to see those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can. Uh, will definitely uh, provide you with some some videos that I did and. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it is quite interesting. I'm not the first glider pilot in the Philippines because the uh, Philippine Air Force in the 1970s they built two gliders for their for their pilot training, 
Um, but I couldn't find out a lot of details about it. They did some arrow toes, obviously, but uh, only maybe within two years, they stopped uh, operating those gliders. So, and it was not really, you know, gliding in the sense like we understand gliding. So how does the day of soaring start out for you there in the Philippines? What's your routine? Kind of walk us through that. Yeah, I um, I usually need this two and a half hours drive to the airfield and uh, I have a caretaker, a young man who takes care of the planes and the hangar. So most of the time when I'm on the way to the airfield, the caretaker, who is also my winch operator, um, he uh, brings out the planes already, uh, sets up the winch. So usually when I arrive at the airfield, uh, I only need to uh, get the glider to take off and can uh, do the checks, of course, and then uh, get into the glider and fly. Um, the uh, Most of the time, I need two or three tries before I can uh, find a thermal and stay in the air. But usually I fly three to four hours. If I have guests with me, of course, I'm happy to fly guests. And... Uh, then uh, after two or three hours, uh, land, do some maintenance and uh, the usual work that you have to do when you run a small airfield and uh, stay overnight in a resort nearby, um, go back to the airfield on Sunday. So it's basically a weekend uh, weekend event for me. And uh, yeah, I have I have every now and then uh, people asking me whether they can fly with me, and uh, you know, this is what I do. I fly whoever wants to fly with me. We always like to take a few minutes and talk about safety here on the podcast, Raul. Do you have any experiences that happened to you that taught you how to be a better and safer pilot? Yeah, actually, this is a very uh, interesting question that you always asked in your podcast. And uh, uh, it's actually quite interesting, uh, the various aspects of uh, safety. One thing that I can say here in the tropics where we have this tremendous heat and uh, the um, uh, I have sometimes quite turbulent weather conditions, um, that uh, we should all also look into our body fitness. So um, enough water intake and uh, whenever you don't feel uh, good, like you have a cold or you had a party last night and uh, had a little bit too much uh, red wine the evening before, you should not fly. So um, I have seen during my the the last years uh, some... Uh, pilots who really um, flew, although they, from my point of view, should not have flown. You know, they they, they didn't feel good, had a, had a cold or something like this. So important is if you don't feel really very good from your body condition to fly, you better don't fly. Because we fly for hobby, we don't need to fly. You know, there's always uh, other days. Absolutely, Ralph. Some great advice. Thank you for that. So what has been maybe one of your most interesting flights? I know there in the Philippines, you kind of stay close. You can't get do a lot of cross-country. But in in your flights, what has been one of your most interesting flights that you can look back on? Yeah. So there's two things that I remember very well. The one is uh, about three, or three years ago, I had a day outstanding with uh, 9,000 feet thermal 
So uh, I flew with a little KA-8 in an afternoon. I uh, didn't really expect to uh, to ever hit a thermal on that day because it was blue. But then late afternoon, like uh, half past four in the afternoon, suddenly a uh, small cumulus developed and uh, um, I, I caught a small, uh, very, very uh, weak lift. And within one hour, everything got much stronger and up to 9,000 feet. That was uh, uh, all of a sudden totally surprising. You know, my my issue here is that I do not have good weather forecast. The local um, uh, weather observatory doesn't really provide good uh, good uh, information about uh, weather development. So this was totally surprising. Beautiful flight. Um, and uh, yeah, you sometimes asked about uh, uh, encounters with birds. Uh, and this actually happened last week when I flew uh, in one of those convergences that I had uh, an encounter with five uh, eagles. You know, we have uh, uh, various types of eagles with a wingspan of six feet or something. And I had uh, one thermal where I really circled with five uh, eagles. But it's not the Philippine eagle. You know, the Philippine eagle is a very, very rare bird. Uh, I have some some experts who told me what uh, what kind of bird it was, but I must admit I forgot now the name. And it is time for our lightning round soaring questions. So what we do, Ralph, basically I give you some questions and provide some options, and you can pick from those options or you can choose to pass. So our first one. So when you're looking for good lift, would you rather follow follow a vulture, a hawk, a condor, or an eagle? Uh, condor. Ventus three or ASG twenty nine. ASG twenty nine. Duodiscus or ASG thirty two. ASG thirty two. Pawnee or Piper Super Cub. Pawnee. Flaps or no flaps. No flaps. Thermals or ridge? Thermals. Fly cross country or stay close to home? Um, stay close to home because I cannot do anything else here. Yes. <laughs> Understand. <laughs> <laughs> Bucket hat, cap, bandana, or topless? Cap. Shoes, boots, or barefoot? Barefoot. Pure glider or motor glider? Pure glider. Pilot parachute or airplane parachute? Uh, pilot parachute. Single seater or two seater? Two seater. Vario sound in sync or quiet? Quiet. Spoilers on to turn final, open or closed? Uh, open. Paper checklist or by memory? Uh, paper checklist. Annual wax or daily spray-on? Daily spray-on. Paper maps or moving maps? Moving map. You smoke the tires on landing. Do you fess up to your mistake or the brake was stuck? Yeah, I, I, I confess my mistake. Brake is stuck. Doesn't happen. Thank you, Ralph. Appreciate you. Have some fun with that. Glider parts. I know you've flown actually here in the United States and some other areas of the world. Do you have any on your bucket list you haven't flown that that maybe someday you would like to do that? For sure it's going to be either uh, Omarama, New Zealand, or uh, Hawaii. I uh, would 
you know, Hawaii not so far away here from the Philippines. So, uh, and uh, what I still would like to do is a decent uh, acrobatic training. My SF-34 is full aerobatic and uh, of course, you know, I, I fly loops and turns, but uh, I would like to uh, train myself to do a little bit more than that. So what is the coolest or strangest thing you've ever seen from the cockpit or on the ground? Well, strange for me was uh, one event where uh, one of my female student pilots uh, flew too far away from the airfield, uh, couldn't find the airfield. So I was in an ASK-13 flying out to her and trying to show her the way back to the airfield. And uh, unfortunately, she still couldn't make it. And uh, I was a I was above her in uh, 1,000 meters uh, when she selected her uh, outlanding field and then unfortunately approached it from the wrong side. So with tailwind and she ground looped the plane. So I was in the ASK-13 and my student ground looped the plane on an, on her first outlanding. But uh, luckily, uh, she, nothing happened. I mean, the plane was destroyed, but <laughs> she was uh, uninjured. Now, this was, uh, let's say... Uh, very moving uh, but at the end uh, you know happy end I once had to at an out landing I made a mistake we had very strong wind and uh, I had to choose uh, landing on an out landing field uphill with a uh, with a jeans astier you know this group 102 astiers which are very heavy planes and I had to choose uh, going uphill, but with tailwind. So I approached this field uphill and just couldn't get the, the, the plane on the ground because of some, you know, lift uh, or, or ridge, ridge soaring effect or something. So I had to go. I flew all along this uh, outlanding field and ended up in some bushes. No much damage uh, with the plane and no injury. So that was all good. And many, many years ago. Well, I'm happy that everything turned out well there, and happy that you were there in the Philippines introducing soaring. That's awesome. Yeah, it's great fun. It's great fun. It's, uh, I really, really, really uh, uh, spent most of my free time to make sure that this thing's gonna gonna fly. You know, I don't wanna wanna spend all this time here and uh, still be the only glider pilot. But uh, yeah, it, it will need some time because. Uh, Sometimes when I go to the airfield and the weather is good, I also prefer to just take the ASW-19 and fly for myself. So I cannot always uh, entertain uh, guests. So it's going to be a little bit slow. Are you using any weather products? And if you are, what do you you use to prepare for your day of soaring? The only thing that I right now use is uh, the Windy app. You know, Windy... uh, has not only wind directions and uh, it also gives uh, an idea about the cloud base and uh, what type of clouds and i look at satellite pictures and so on but uh, um, i just contacted skyside for example but uh, they of course cannot cover the philippines so weather forecast wise uh, i'm a little bit uh, also far off the track but uh, over the years, I'm now here f- more than 20 years in the Philippines. So um, I observe the weather, of course, and uh, 
we have very very local weather systems so um, and because it's tropical uh, things change very fast you know we have strong wind and uh, uh, basically basically uh, forecasting tropical uh, weather is uh, already difficult enough but for my flying you know it's not so important i do not do cross country flights so uh, uh, I just fly, and when the weather is good, I fly. You know. Ralph, I always like to give everyone a chance to give a shout-out to maybe anyone that's been influential in their soaring over the years. So would you like to do that? Yeah, I can do that. Uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to thank uh, an American friend of mine, Vinny Rano, and a Filipino friend of mine, Jimmy Ramos, who uh, are actually my... Uh, the ones who invited me to set up the gliding activities on their private airfield. Uh, they, without them, I would not know where to where to fly. And uh, it is great fun to partner with them on this uh, little airfield uh, there in the southwest of uh, of uh, Manila. Ralph, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Super interesting and exciting things going on there in the Philippines. We wish you the best, and anything we can do, of course, here at the podcast to help you grow the soaring community, <laughs> let us know. Absolutely. Yeah, I would say whoever from the United States uh, happens to come here to the Philippines can contact me, and uh, whenever I would have time, uh, we can fly. No, it's no problem. And uh, yeah, Chuck, thanks a lot, and uh, please uh, keep on uh, running this uh, podcast. It's uh, really, really, really inspirational, really good. Go ahead with it. Thank you, Ralph. Will do. We now join author and glider pilot Dale Masters for another soaring tale with Dale, and this one's called Go Fly a Kite. From far away, they look like insects against flat light of the horizon. So indistinct at first, I wasn't sure they were really there. A clutch of very large birds, I thought, or maybe some crazy humans. In either case, probably marking lift. Soon, silhouettes appeared of three paragliders, their vivid colors grayed by cloud shadow. We see paragliders all around California, and three times not uncommon, but these folks seem to hover almost stationary, not circling or moving in any apparent direction, and parked so near each other I could see them gesturing and calling over their shoulders, flying very slowly in different directions, but staying close together. How can that be? When I tiptoed right under them, felt a few bumps, but nothing that could keep me up, had to fly away and find a real thermal before coming back to investigate. They seemed to be working separate indrafts that fed a single convergence. One after the other, tried to meander away following the scent, but each had to retreat, ending up back again in about the same place. I returned with energy to spend, circled them one time at eye level and waved, but still found no useful lift. Second time around, I wrapped in nice and snug, and we all jested enthusiastically, but still nothing worth my time. So I shrugged stupidly and flew away. Now another time, I overtook a paraglider running downwind toward our airport. I was headed there myself with about the same altitude, but more than triple the performance. So I pulled over on the way by to carve a quick one, offer a salute, and hopefully some encouragement. As I angled across ahead of it, the 
bogey went hard over in the same direction, I suppose, just to flaunt superior maneuverability, which naturally obliged me to show what I could do, too. The pilot was slung out 45 degrees below his kite, so my greater speed required even more bank to stay close, and going steeper demanded yet more speed. This left me teasing stall at 60 knots and 60 degree bank, lapping the kite in an orbit not much wider than its own. Then, weary of exceeding two Gs, and I glided on. Curious why anyone would jinx their chance for comfort to the airport until late in the day with even one wasted circle. Moments after landing, I watched the bogey descend beyond treetops a mile short, conveniently near my road home. I tied down extra quick and hurried off to meet this character, get some questions answered, and maybe a new, maybe gain a new friend. He'd already stowed his kit when I hold up, and uh, he was about to start hitchhiking, though eager to talk at first, when he learned I was the guy he'd just dueled with, he threw down the big satchel and looked like he wanted to fight. Turns out I'd snared him with my wake, the way dolphins and whales bubble net schools of fish. His steep turn was a desperate effort to keep my turbulence from collapsing his wing. And the harder I cranked, the more danger he was in. I had done to him what a number of grinning jet jockeys have done to me over the years, only worse because I stuck around. And I should know as well as anyone that nothing's more helpless than a sitting duck. Boy, did I feel like a bomb. With more grace than I deserved, he had me promise to never paint anyone who's lighter than myself with a weight. Which makes me wonder if those three paragliders in that convergence were waving more than howdy when I circled them. This soaring safety segment is brought to you by Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. Aerox, number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable oxygen systems. Aerox now introduces the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. Small, lightweight, and simple to use. The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. Aerox engineered for aviators. Hello, Ben Mays. Hi, it's great to be here. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I know we haven't talked since December of 19. Wow, time flies. Yeah, it sure does. And since then, you know, our audience has more than doubled. So for the benefit of all of our new listeners, could you please just do a quick introduction of yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm uh, Ben Mays with Williams Soaring Center out in Northern California. I've uh, spent my whole life on the on the glider port here. My parents, uh, Rex Mays and Noel Mays, have been running the operation out here for about 30 years. Just recently taken over as chief flight instructor at Williams, and uh, I've spent the last 10 years driving around the country crewing for uh, different people at nationals and kind of just been coming up the ranks, interested in starting cross-country racing this year for the first, uh, for my first time being in the cockpit, so... That's a little bit about me. So it's a family business then, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, my, uh, at Williams, my dad 
Rex Mays runs the operation. Uh, my mom runs the office and I have a, a younger brother, Nick, who runs the shop and is towing. And uh, I've kind of taken it and I'm doing a lot of the flight instruction out here. So we uh, family operation for about 30 years now. Well, speaking of Williams Soaring Center, um, our co-producer, Mitch, he was up there with a photographer a few weeks ago shooting some material for their new glider sim rig and was actually lucky enough to stumble into that brand new AS33 that you guys unboxed. Uh, Maybe you could tell us a bit about the glider and just overall your role, which like you're in North America and how that business is going and where you see it going and what kind of gliders are folks really getting into here in North America? What are they mostly buying? Yeah, you know, so um, the the Slacker business has been going great. Um, they've just they've announced the AS33 with the electric uh, self-launch system. Now the AS34, uh, I believe they've test flown now and uh, you know doing a lot uh, starting up in the electric uh, world. It'll be great to see. I think we're still about a year out from seeing one of them delivered, but we did get the AS33 ES in. And uh, I've flown side by side with it. It's been sitting in our hangar for about two weeks and the thing's just gorgeous. They took a lot of Concordia technology uh, from Dick Butler and put it into the wings. It's just amazing. You know, it it definitely in the air, uh, it's hard to tell the difference between it and the 29, but when you get until it puts the nose down and it runs away from you. I, uh, I've been fortunate enough to fly side by side three times now in our, I was in the 32 uh, with students each time and it, it is quick. Uh, it'll be it'll be really interesting to see how it goes this year. Um, with uh, hopefully, I'm I'm hoping here in the next couple of weeks we have a couple of guys with JSs and a couple of guys with 29s. I really want to get them all wing to wing and see how they do. So, what are the specs on the 33? So it's still yeah 1815 uh, configuration. Uh, currently, this one was a, a the 25 horse uh, sustainer solo engine, but um, I can't. I don't remember the glide ratio right off the top of my head, but it's about, we're anticipating about, I think three to five points on the 29. It's, um, you know, I, I really think it's, it's going to be quite the, uh, quite quicker. The, it's got a, light, a lighter wing loading. Um, they changed the, uh, the ballast placement. So it has ballast in the inner and outer wings now. Oh, nice. A lot of little, a lot of little tweaks, some creature comforts in the cockpit. You know, it's real nice. In our pre-interview, you had mentioned about new focus on cross-country training there at Williams, as well as how you recently also tried to integrate Condor a bit into the program where it fits. Could you tell the listeners a bit, a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the biggest things coming out of for, forever, as long as I've been in the, in the industry, I've, all I've, I've heard about is how the sport of cross-country racing is dying. You know, and so, and, and I see it around here. It's really hard to, to bridge the gap. And I think more so at a commercial operation to get guys, you know, we have, we do 30 licenses a year out here, but very seldom do they stick around for more than a season. And so trying to figure out how to bridge that gap between, um, you know, just your primary or your, um, you know, getting a private license or a commercial license and actually becoming a cross country pilot. So, We've had for the last handful of years, um, our part, we have a, a local club that's just a so, social club at Williams is the Valley Soaring Association. And we've ran a race series every year with an emphasis on racing. In the last two or three years, I've really seen the, a decline in the, the, the group. Everyone's interested more in OLC and going out and just having big, long days. So 
we've put together a 12 ta 11 task uh, cross country series that incorporates some some uh, assigned area tasks, but mostly big turn area tasks. And we're encouraging we're encouraging racing um, amongst some of the more competitive pilots, but mostly mentoring to try and get guys to use their computers and get around the tasks. Something I've realized more so in the last year is a lot of people aren't using their computers correctly or at all. You know, they're not putting in tasks or just, you know, the computers are there. It has Final Glide home to William or to their home airport, and they're not really using them to their full potential. Um, not that we want them heads down in the cockpit, but there's a lot of information that they can be grabbing from it. So I've kind of started from trying to figure out, you know, there's no way to help teach someone in their own aircraft how to use their computer in the air. Except uh, maybe zoom, uh, zoom in the cockpit, which I don't think is a good idea just yet. We are doing some pretty cool things with Zoom, so maybe eventually. But for now, um, you know, it's mostly trying to figure out um, how to use it with Condor. So integrating Condor into the program, um, using any computer. You know, a lot of people are using XC Soars on it, so it doesn't really integrate well with uh, the ClearNav so much. But it's still just the idea of what you need while you're flying. What does your, what information do you need out of your computer? How do you use it? You know, cause they all have fairly similar interfaces. You know, you're going to go into the circle, you're going to turn, they're all telling you the same information. It's just how they're extrapolating the data and some of the underlying algorithms. So um, trying to get those connected a little bit better and getting people to use it is where, you know, I think the focus for the, the condor uh, has come into play. Yeah. And, and so inexpensive, you know, as far as getting a lot of practice in on the condor and then putting it to use when you get out there on the field. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and now you know, we were fortunate about a year ago, they came out with the California scenery so we can really, you know, we fly the Mendocino mountain range or the coastal mountain range out here and it can be intimidating for people, but, uh, you know, it's really nice cause we fly up the Sacramento Valley. There's a lot of, there's a County airport every 20 miles and we're, we're flying about 7,000 feet in the mountains, seven to 10,000 feet and the valley floors, at the, uh, you know, maybe at the highest point, a hundred feet. So we really have these mountains we can fall off. There's nice, easy places to land, but it's intimidating. We take a 30 mile tow just to get to our soaring site and then, and then go soaring from there. And that, you know, especially, uh, for, for new people, it's, it's an intimidating glide. Um, so being able to go out there and do it on Condor, do it confidently, do it successfully, and kind of see what that all looks like, see what those transitions look like. Um, yeah, I think it's invaluable to be able to go. I was just talking with uh, my instructing staff this morning, and we're trying to figure out how to get instructors out there more often. And I said, hey, if you know that you're going to go fly on Sunday and you're going to go do a task, assign them a task on Condor you know, on Thursday so they can go see it beforehand so it's not the first time they see this mountain and they're not trying to suck in just being that far away and the computer and all these other things. They've already seen the terrain. It's, you know, it's really uh, shown its value. Yeah, it's definitely going to make them feel a lot more comfortable when they get in the cockpit and actually do that task. Oh, absolutely. Because it's, uh, you know, I, I for, I've been fortunate enough to be doing it for like 15 years now and it's, it's hard to put yourself back in that place of, you know, your first cross country, learning the computer, learning the glider, learning, you know, not even to mention how to relieve yourself and all the other issues you have in the airplane. But there's so much that you just don't, you have to learn yourself, you know, and that computer is, is one that you shouldn't be trying to learn 
in the air while you're flying around with other people. You know, you really have to be confident in, in, in not spending more than 30 seconds head down at any time, really not more than 10 seconds, but you know, it's hard to do when you start clicking on clicking the screens through. So absolutely. You know, while I've got you on the pod, since you've probably done quite a bit of flying since we last talked, how about a story? It can be any story, whether it's your own, maybe even something you heard about last season, just any old soaring story and what you might've learned from it. Um, you know, it was actually, uh, a week ago, I learned all about, um, final glide finishes and, and, uh, you know, kind of get their itis. And, uh, I, I got probably the lowest I got have, have been in, in our Valley about 10 miles out wondering if I, luckily I was in the 32 and I had places to land, but you know, I, I we ran a task. It was a nice little Valley day here, 6,000 foot in the foothills, about 10, we had to tow out 10 miles to get to the foothills and we're flying along all day. You know, I wanted just a, a scratchy day where we ended up over, you know, two or three different land out sites, you know, 2000 feet and climbed out. But the last one I was running home and saw the finish cylinder. And, uh, I've, I've run into this problem twice now where I set my computer just wrong at the beginning of the year where I didn't, I didn't set my arrival altitudes right. And just kind of was thinking backwards. And so I'm sitting in the back seat with a student running down the ridge saying, Hey, yeah, this is going to be good. The site picture looks good. Everything looks fine. The computer's set just right. You know, the computer says we're good. All the, the math says we're good. And I came around the corner and uh, found myself in six knots of sink on the backside of a, a ridge going to a land out at the back, uh, the back of the valley. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was. I, uh, I got down. I think there's something magic tied to uh, any of, uh, I, I'd like to say Schleicher products, but I know it's not true. I think it's just motor gliders in general that when you arm the engine, you find a thermal. So I'm going to start arming it a little earlier. Um, <laughs> Cause I was, we were, I was just on the backside, just enough that I could get through a gap, but I didn't want to push on the other side of the Valley without getting a little more climb. So I was able to sneak another, I, I got a little bump, got 500 feet pushed into the Valley and actually Peter Dean and his JS three flew over the top of me. He marked a thermal. I got up, um, but I, I just went, you know, from a thousand to 1500 feet across the Valley. I needed, I had, about 12 miles I had to glide and I was able to sneak up, you know, there's three landouts across the valley, which is pretty cool about this site is there's, there's nice crop duster fields everywhere. So I got up high enough that I can get to the next one. I just kind of worked my way home. And the whole time I was thinking, you know, I learned so much from going out. Um, you know, when I was, as soon as I was 16 and could drive, I'd start going to nationals and crewing for guys. Every single one of them has one thing in common and they tell you, keep it in the air and something good will happen. And so that's all I could think as I was in a, in a little less than half knot thermal, uh, keep it in the air and just don't, you don't worry about starting the engine. I had my, my, my minimum. I said, if I cross a thousand feet, I'm turning, turning downwind and starting the engine, I'm not making a turn less than a thousand feet. Um, but just keep it in the air and something good. So we get down, you know, 1200 feet, zero sink and it'd pop off and, uh, you know, it, it works. You just have to not get frustrated. So <laughs> that's mine. That's mine for the start of the season. So the story about, well, I saw it on Instagram and then uh, Mitch was talking about the story about the glider hitting the water there and the Pegasus in the water. Did you tell me that story or you had mentioned, I think he had mentioned Rex, I guess your dad had uh, told that story. Yeah. So I, my dad definitely told the story, you know, I, I've heard it secondhand a handful of times and, uh, 
the, the Cliff Notes version was that it was they were shooting an insurance commercial, and you know it just it's hard to tell how low you are on smooth water, and so you just going in for the shot. There's a camera there, and you push a little too hard. Came up, and it, it looked it, what looks like toilet paper uh, streaming off the back of the glider was the Pegasus. Um, had these long sheets, and it was wrapped around the nose. So came off. Uh, the gentleman's feet were sticking out of the front of the glider. You can see him kick just a little bit, and he came around and made a nice, safe landing right on a sandy beach. His feet, his feet hanging out the front of the plane. So everyone was fine. Obviously, gliders total, but um, you know, it was. There's a there's a saying in America, right? Hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. <laughs> Last but not least. How about just a few minutes talking about another important safety concept that you as a CFI would like to reinforce? We never can have enough safety in soaring. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would say, you know, our operation here has really grown quite a bit in the last year. I brought on a second instructor and we've had a lot of, a lot more people flying. And I, I didn't really appreciate this much because I didn't, we, we were never really a busy operation. But I can't stress enough the importance of being able to fly without instruments and without, you know, practicing, going up and doing some preseason practice and flying, not necessarily without instruments, or just head out of the cockpit. Um, you know, early season, uh, we just had last Saturday, yeah, last Saturday, we had our first big task holiday. And, you know, I was sitting here looking at guys who been at nationals, been at world championships, won nationals, and guys who haven't done anything but fly at Williams. And I sat there and said, hey, we need to have a safety briefing. Um, it's, the first se- it's the first day of the year. It's the first day there's been 20 people out here. And all of us know that we didn't fly as much as we wanted to last year, if at all, right? Corona set, COVID shut down a lot of the flying for the year. And everyone needs to just take a second and take a gut check know that we're going to be flying with people, know that it's low valley days. We're going to be coming in from every which direction. We call the task to keep everyone going the same direction, but just be smart. You know, we read about our friends too often uh, in the paper and uh, there's no, there's no reason um, to just to do anything silly early in the season. That's going to mess you up, you know, gear up the, the early season gear ups that are going to put you out of the season. Um, you know, is my water full? Is my bag packed? Just take an extra second and do that real quick little buddy check. I know the seniors are going on right now. Um, you know, just ask everyone and watch people because we're not as uh, as proficient potentially or um, as as we're used to. So the little, all the little things are the, are what are going to slip through the cracks. I think that's the that's the takeaway I'm 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 going into this year and what I'm preaching at my flight reviews this year. Um, going into just the 2021 soaring season. Absolutely, Ben. Some good advice for sure. And we all come out of the come out of the winter break all a little rusty, and all those extra precautions are definitely something we need. I do have one more little drop uh, if uh, if I'll, if I'm allowed to. Here. Absolutely, um, sure. Just uh, just so anyone knows, I, I know a lot of people here. Uh, you know, a lot of people around the world. There's a handful of ClearNav customers. Um, a lot of LX customers, but, um, and a lot of, I've heard, heard it at the last couple of conventions that people think, uh, clear nav instruments is dead, but I do want to, uh, let them know within the next, 
month, month and a half, we'll be announcing uh, officially a, uh, a brand new color display uh, Vario for ClearNav instruments. And so I just want to put that out to the uh, to the masses, let them know that that uh, that will be coming. Awesome. Good deal. We're excited, uh, we're excited for it. And we have a new lightning round question segment. I don't know if you've heard it, but basically we give you two or three options. You pick the most appropriate one, one that feels right. Worst case scenario, you can say pass. Try to answer as many as you can. If you want to toss in a short explanation, you're welcome to do that as well. So what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Let's go for it. All right, cool. If looking for good lift, would you rather follow a vulture, a hawk, or a raven? Hawk. Definitely a hawk. Ventus 3 or JS3? Even though you're a Schleicher agent, so you can pass if you want. Ooh. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, think the, I think a Ventus 3. Yeah, I go with a okay. Ventus 3. Pawnee or Piper Super Cub? I feel like they're better than uh, oh, Pawnee, all day long. Claire Nav, LX9000, or Odie? Ooh, that one's hard. Um, I think I'm going to go with the Claire Nav. Okay. Sky Sight or XC Skies? Uh, Sky Sight, but I don't... Uh, I, yeah, Sky Sight. Flaps or no flaps? Flaps. Absolutely. Wave or convergence? Convergence. I don't do well in the cold. Bucket hat, cap, bandana... Or topless? Uh, uh, just a cap. Just a ball cap. So in summer, long pants or shorts? Uh, those cool zipper shorts that you can convert. Or the zipper pants. Yeah, you can pull off. Yeah. yeah, nice. Yeah, they're good. Shoes, boots, or barefoot? Shoes. Water bottle or camelback? Water bottle. Transponder or ADSB? ADSB. GoPro or 360 cam? GoPro. Netto or speed to fly and cruise? Speed to fly and cruise. Pure glider or motor glider? A year ago, I would have said uh, pure glider, but I'm now I'm now convinced motor glider. All right, cool. Yeah. There's new gliders coming out, right? Oh, absolutely. Sustainer or self-starter? Self-launch. Definitely self-launch. Electric sustainer or turbo? Probably go I haven't flown one yet, but I'm, I'm liking it. Yeah, they sound very cool. Fest or pylon? Uh, pylon. 18 meter or 15 meter? 18. Metal gliders or wooden gliders? Mm, metal gliders. Various sound on or off in sync? Uh, I used to be off, but now I went back to on. I did find myself bumbling through sync unknowingly once I turned it off for the first two months. Yeah. Landing gear brake on the side or on the stick? Yeah, yeah, definitely on the spoiler. Polarized sunglasses or non-polarized? Polarized. Spoilers on turn to final, open or closed? Open. Paper checklist or mnemonic? You know, I've actually gone to on the computer, but paper, probably. Okay. Nice. Parachute for pattern flights, yes or no? Uh, no. So you smoke the tire on landing. Do you fess up to your mistake or the brake was stuck? Uh, probably fess up to it only because I got to change it either way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Last time you looked at the compass. That's a good question. I think, uh, well, I, I guess when I installed it in our 21s two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mechanical barrio or electronic only? 
mechanical. P two, P bag or diaper. I've gone to uh, bag, bag. Yeah. It's one of those things we don't hear much about, but. Oh, absolutely! No, I tried. I I had a tube with a funnel, and then that that it only works in in the back seat of the thirty two. Otherwise, just that laying down is not. Oh wow! It's something yeah. they don't teach you. There's no good way to learn that tip if you're new to it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You can't find a mentor. You can find a mentor for a lot of things, but the P tube's not one. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> canopy that opens toward the front, or a canopy that opens at the side. Towards the front. You tie down for the night, or stuff into the trailer every time, no matter what. Uh, in the trailer. In the trailer. I've been out too many times at midnight trying to tie gliders yeah. down because guys want to put them in the trailers. <laughs> Takes 20 minutes to put yeah. it in the box. <laughs> so Condor, just a fancy video game or a great teaching and learning tool for pilots of all levels? I know we talked about that, but... You know, I think it's... I, I really... I, I thought it was a fancy video game at first. I really, I really have been kind of converted over to if used properly, it can be a really good training tool. Um but I do caution there is a if used properly in there. Yes, yes, absolutely. Steak, chicken, salmon, or garden salad? Steak. Pale ale, stout, golden ale, or American lager? Ooh, pale ale. Nice. Sierra Nevada, it's brewed local. Ah, I can't beat it. Yep, absolutely. Thank you, Ben. That was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for all you're doing for the sport and... And uh, yeah, this has been great. Absolutely. We're having a blast. Thank you guys for doing everything you're doing there at Williams, getting people excited about soaring. You know, we get bored flying around our own little water ports there. And it's definitely important for people to venture out and learn how to cross country and have some goals and just get excited about it. Oh, absolutely. You know, we're, uh, I'm just starting to ramp up. We're hosting uh, this year the 20 meter. And the standard class nationals up in Montague, California, just uh, just north of Mount Shasta, and we're uh, we're super excited to try and get some I'm trying to get some more locals um, to run run up there with us, and uh, we'll see if uh, we we had talked about a regional. We'll see if it happens or not. But um, you know, I mean, I think that's that's what it's all about. You know, I mean, we love Thermalin, and it just unfortunately especially around here, it's hard to get people, you know, it's, it's a hard jump to make it cross country is a big commitment. And, uh, but it, it's fun. It's rewarding. It's stressful, but it's fun. I just share it with the world. Well, thanks Ben for joining us again and chatting with us a little bit. Some really cool stuff going on there. Keep up the good work. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And the show is proud to announce yet another new sponsor, Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for more than 30 years now. They have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplanes and soaring supplies in the U.S. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. They are proud to be the exclusive American representative for HPH LTD, manufacturer of the finest quality sailplanes. The HPH Twin Shark is the newest 20-meter two-place sailplane on the market and arriving in North America this spring. Their staff has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call. Located in Eagle, Idaho, Wings and Wheels has a new commercial building with warehouse built to their specifications and completed in 2021. 
Whether shipping domestic or international, your soaring-related supply list is covered. Come visit them next time you are in the Boise area. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. And through the end of May, if you use the promo code POD2021, you'll get a free 8-inch sailplane decal with your order. We're stoked to have them on board the pod and thank them for their support. We now chat with Monet Beers for our Tips and Techniques segment. She's going to share her experience attending the recent Senior Soaring Championship in Seminole Lake, Florida. Monet Beers, welcome to Soaring the Sky. So happy to have you today. How are you? I am doing great. I'm excited to speak with you. You were recently down at the Seniors in Florida competition, correct? Yes, I uh, flew down to watch my instructor and Barry Yeager fly in the seniors competition in Claremont. So tell us about the competition. How did it go? Oh, I guess it's been going on for 31 years. My instructor would always talk about, um, point out the topography of the area that we fly in the Southern Lakes region of Minnesota and how that would translate to competition flying. And for years, uh, Barry had been asking Don to come down and fly with him, and he got the opportunity again this year. Uh, Mr. Andrews, who normally flies with him, was going to mentor another uh, glider pilot this year, so that opened up the back seat for uh, my instructor, Don Ingraham, to fly with, with Barry and the seniors. So uh, they set off to, to go do that in Barry's Arcus M and trailered it down from Minnesota to Florida. They rent a house down there every year. Uh, Barry told me this was his ninth or 10th um, seniors uh, tournament and usually goes and, and uh, just tries to best his last year each time, just gaining more and more experience um, among the soaring greats that uh, would congregate there for the seniors tournament. So my dad, being a Minnesotan, uh, now Floridian, uh, decided to fly into Fort Myers and uh, he said he'd really like to go up and see what this whole glider tournament thing was like. And since I had never been to one either, <laughs> we drove from Fort Myers up for opening day of uh, the seniors tournament, which would be the, the Saturday opening. I had uh, been keeping in contact with Barry and Don. Um, they were pretty elated for their practice day with a fifth place and some beautiful cumulus clouds. So they were really jazzed to get started on uh, day one, which turned out to be uh, pretty much a blue bowl. A really um, tough contest day for the whole grid. Quite a few competitors there, I would imagine. I think there were 62. So watching oh, wow. when I first got there, um, they were just congregated at the uh, far end of the airfield. So I uh, abandoned my family <laughs> and walked down <laughs> to find my competitors. and. Uh, just, you know, kind of like glider candy. It was like squirrel, you know, things here and there. All of the different uh, types of gliders from the single seaters to the you know, tandem gliders up to the 20 meter, uh, really long wings. And walking down the, as they were getting them uh, placed in the grid for their uh, takeoffs and finally found my people and surprised them because they didn't know I was coming. <laughs> So uh, standing at the back of the grid was quite amazing just to see all of the all of the long wings out out in front and finally get to see what a competition staging was like and they just did an amazing job 
from the uh, you know the kids that were doing the wing routing to hooking up all these gliders and getting them off the ground in about an hour was just amazing. Three ponies uh, pulling them up and just one right after the other. Pretty amazing stuff to see. Yeah, that was my question. I was presuming they were all arrow toe and they all got them up pretty quick. They did. Uh, I did ask Barry after they got back. A couple of the motor gliders were um, able to do a self start if they wanted to. But I imagine there's probably some rules about when that engine would have to be shut off. They were uh, towing to 2,000 feet only, so the rest of the altitude they had to had to gain. And then speaking with them on how those all launch, um, I was under the impression initially that they could start around the course, but they did not. <laughs> the gliders uh, out in front, the shorter wings, uh, would draw for their position each day for launching. But once all of the gliders were launched, they would open the start window for the task. Uh, that particular day was three turn points that they had to complete, not necessarily in the fastest time, which was something else that I learned later on. Um, that there's a lot of strategy involved with um, the different turn points because you can go out a ways from the turn point, the virtual turn points in, in the GPS. So a faster time with more miles can actually get you a higher score than if you would have just hugged the turn points and been the first glider back on the ground. Oh, interesting. So lots of strategy in there. And all these gliders with the different um, you know, glide ratios and the like had to be up there at the same time when they opened the start window. So those in the front would still have to have maintained some altitude. They, the advantage would be that they would have some time to kind of look at what's going on with the topography and find their, find their spot where they're going to, to go, and the ones last up would have essentially less time. But for that particular day, it was an advantage to be at the back of the pack because you were closer to that start window. So how did the day go? Did you see them coming in then? I mean, was it, they all kind of came in at once? They did, and that was amazing to watch uh, all of these gliders land and, and the different uh, patterns that they would fly um, in. And Fast and Furious on, on the landing, a couple um, did end up landing quite long, coming in quite fast <laughs> and watching them try to put, put these gliders down and knowing that there was just an, you know one right after the other. It's just amazing to watch. That was probably more fun to watch than the takeoffs. <laughs> right. How long did you stay? I stayed for the day. Uh, had to leave right about the time when they were would be uh, congregating for, for dinner, and I'm told that that's uh, in the evenings would, would be a better time to... <laughs> to uh, kind of hang out and uh, just listen into each of the you know pilots talk about their their day and their strategy and if they would share it of course because it is a competition <laughs> right yeah exactly. but for me it was just a collection of you know all of the people whose you know books that I've read and and um, you know flight logs that you you know read throughout your you know training all in one place so the only other way to do that would be to go to each of the uh, SSA regionals if they were still flying and, and meet them there. So just being among, you know, Carl Stredek and Sarah Kelly Arnold, who flew with him, silver medalist, 
And uh, Laura Radigan was there. She did an aerobatic show on Monday. I got to meet her the November prior when I went uh, just needing to get off the ground since our Minnesota soaring season was over. I searched them out because they do also have a grobe, which is what I fly here. Uh, so she asked me to wing run for her. So that's where I met, met Laura at first. And uh, she spends a great deal of time there and is the correspondent for the SSA there on the ground. It's amazing. Yes. She put on the aerobatic show before the event, right? Um, on Monday night, so a couple of days after the start. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, I had to go back to Fort Myers. I did miss it this year. But now I know what it's all about. I can't wait to go and, and go and stay maybe a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Everyone I talk to that have been to the competitions, even if you're not there to compete, you learn so much about the, the competitions. Absolutely. Yeah. Just having that collection of 55 and older um, is the cutoff for for the pilots that enter. They only allow five that are not 55 years or older. So if you're going to go oh, interesting. and get, uh, you know, get a seat with one of the soaring greats for, you know, cross country instruction, that's going to be your best. <laughs> your uh, yeah. Best opportunity to do that, even, you know, whether you're in the in the plane with them or on the ground watching the whole the whole process. It was quite fascinating. My my dad in, thoroughly enjoyed it, uh, not being a, a glider buff. And then I had another friend that came up from uh, the Jacksonville area that was pretty fascinated by the whole thing too. <laughs> like all these engineless aircraft up there competing in a race. Right. Like how is that possible? That whole strategy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for sharing us your experience there at the seniors. It's uh, very cool. We appreciate that. Well, thanks for having me. It was a unique experience. And uh, after three or four years of, of Barry and other various people that were competing, you know, hounding me that I needed to go and see this because it's amazing, finally relented and uh, went down. And now it's like I'm ready to go already again, and it's already over. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Absolutely. Well, Manea, we are going to have you back on the podcast because I really want to hear your story about aviation. So listeners, keep uh, listening and we'll be, we'll be having Monet coming up here not too distant future. And thank you for joining us for another episode here on Soaring the Sky. And don't forget to leave your stories on the website there, soaringthesky.com. Love to hear them. If you don't have a story, but maybe you have a glider friend that does, Tell them about it. Spread the word so we can bring you more great soaring content. So until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.